from the Holy Gospel of St. Matthew. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, and he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, and see I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Um, I am, I'm John Stork. I'm the interim pastor here at Res Pres. If you are visiting with us this morning, again, uh, I want to extend a, a special welcome to you uh, on this Easter morning. It's, uh, it's a sincere uh, privilege and delight to welcome you uh, here to Res Pres uh, as we remember and celebrate the physical and bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And having said that, uh, I do not for one second uh, assume that everyone here uh, this morning is convinced that the event of Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate today is in fact a historical reality. Uh, even those who of us, those of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus, if we were honest with ourselves and with others, would have to admit that sometimes we wrestle with that claim from time to time. Uh, but I would make the case that because it is not an overstatement to say that the claims of this Jesus of Nazareth are literally cosmic and eternal in scope and in their ramifications, and because as many as 2.4 billion people around the world will celebrate this event either this week or next, it matters whether this seemingly preposterous claim that this man Jesus actually and literally bodily resurrected. It matters if that is true or not. So with that in mind, as we come to this text, probably a familiar text if you've been around the church for a while, let us ask God, let us ask Jesus once again to be present with us and to speak to us through these words. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we do now come into your presence with this, your word, and we recognize that all of us in here this morning have come in to this place uh, from different perspectives, different mindsets, 
different emotional states. Some of us have come in this morning and knowing that we were waking up to Easter morning, there has been joy in our hearts and we were excited to come and be here as a community of faith, singing and celebrating your resurrection. Others of us this morning are here and we are following you. We are genuine believers in you, Jesus, and yet we're in a season right now where it's, it's just really hard. <laughs> and we're here, if we were honest, more because this is what we do on Easter morning. But we're here. Perhaps we're here this morning and not even sure if these things that we're hearing about can actually be believed <laughs> as genuine and true and authentic. Father, however we find ourselves this morning, would you grant maybe just one phrase, maybe just one word that would either affirm or renew a sense of hope in this life where we are right now? Jesus, help us to believe that we are not here by accident, but you've arranged it even on this Easter day to be here. So send your spirit now, I pray. For Christ's sake, amen. So, <laughs> what happened that first Easter morning, as we call it now? What is Easter? What can we know about it? I have approval from my two sons to tell you this story, so I'm going to do it based on their approval. So if, if, it's not, if it doesn't go well, it's not my fault. But the story goes that three men died and they're standing before the pearly gates and St. Peter comes and says, you're welcome to come in if you can answer this one question. What is Easter? The first man confidently steps forward and says, I know the answer to this one. <laughs> it's that time every year we get together in November, family comes over, we make a turkey, there's mashed potatoes, there's pumpkin pie. It's an amazing event. Peter shakes his head like, <laughs> No, that, that's Thanksgiving. Looks to the second guy. Do you know what Easter is? Oh, yeah. Don't know what he was thinking. But Easter's that time in December. Also family gets together. We celebrate the birth of this little baby. And then there were shepherds and angels. And it's a, it's a wonderful. We give gifts. And this guy in a red suit comes down a chimney. It's, and Peter's just shaking his head. He's aghast. He's like, no, that's Christmas. He turns to the third guy. He, he's, he's exasperated. He looks at the third guy. He says, please tell me you know what Easter is. And the guy looks at him very confidently. He says, I absolutely know what Easter is. It was that time we celebrate when a man died on a cross. They took him down. They put him into a tomb. They rolled a stone up next to it. And before he can continue, Peter interrupted and said, finally, somebody knows what Easter's about. And the guy continued. And every year since then, they go and they roll the stone away. He comes out. If he sees his shadow, there's six more weeks of winter. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, well. That's not Easter. <laughs> but there are few cultural sociological phenomena. I would make the case this morning. Like what happened in first century Palestine when a ragtag band of predominantly poor and powerless and relatively uneducated disciples of a would-be Messiah 
spread a movement out of Palestine and across Asia Minor and Eastern Europe in such a short period of time. Here's how the late New Testament scholar and professor Dr. Wayne Meeks of Yale University once put it. Never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or otherwise, without the aid of physical force, achieved a commanding position in such a short time, in such an important society. He finishes by saying it is clear that at the beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unparalleled in history, without which the future course of the religion is utterly inexplicable. Something happened. And if you're here this morning and are a serious student of history, and at least curious whether the claims of Christianity can be believed and embraced, and not merely as fairy tales and outlandish legends, I would suggest that intellectual integrity requires some explanation for what happened then. After Jesus of Nazareth was brutally put to death and executed like an insurrectionist by the Roman superpower. Some years back, the online editorial news source Slate.com posted a very fascinating article called Happy Crossmas. <laughs> In it, the author wrote, unlike Christmas, Easter resists a non-committal response. Even agnostics and atheists who don't accept Christ's divinity can accept the general outlines of the Christmas story with little danger to their worldview. But Easter demands a response. It's hard for a non-Christian to say, yes, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, died, was buried, and rose from the dead. That's not something you can believe without serious ramifications. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, what he says about the world and the way we live in that world then has a real claim on you. Easter is an event that demands a yes or a no. There is no whatever. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christian believers in Corinth, came at it from a different angle, but made essentially the same point, and admitted and even conceded that if the resurrection did not happen, this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith as Christians is in vain. This is in sacred scripture. The apostle Paul concedes if the resurrection did not happen, our faith is in vain. It's pointless. It's worthless. And therefore, he continues, we are still therefore in our sins and that we ultimately, Christians, are of all people the most to be pitied. He goes further and says, if it's not true, borrowing from a prominent philosophy of his day, let us therefore eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
Paul would be the first to say, if you have good reason and evidence on your side, the resurrection did not happen. The last thing we should be doing this morning is putting on nice clothes, gathering to celebrate such a universal hoax on this beautiful April spring morning. Complete waste of time. So what is the evidence? What's the evidence? How can we genuinely be sure that this genuinely happened, authentically happened? Now, there's not obviously enough time to exhaust the entire conversation, but I want to make four quick observations that I believe are strong pieces of evidence. First of all, the idea of a bodily resurrection that we read about here in Matthew 28 of one man did not fit into anyone's worldview or philosophy about life in the first century. Nobody. On the one hand, the early proponents and members of this little community that started following Jesus of Nazareth were Jewish adherents. And in Jewish teaching, there was not even consistent belief that resurrection was in the cards for anybody. But even for those who believed there was such a thing as resurrection, it was something that was going to happen way in the future, at the end of the world, to all God's people, not just one individual by himself living in the middle of history. And on the other hand, for those outside of the Jewish faith of the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, the idea of someone bodily and physically rising again from the dead would have had absolutely no cultural or social or philosophical traction whatsoever. Because in the Greco-Roman world, bodily resurrection would have actually been despised as an idea. The one common denominator between the leading philosophies of the day, Gnosticism, Stoicism, Platonism, Epicureanism, was that this physical body, this material world, was bad. Something we need to escape from. It was nonsensical enough to claim that God took on bodily flesh and became human. But to say he was victorious in his mission to save the world because he physically and bodily rose from the dead would have been absolutely repulsive. The predominant worldview of that day would have had no respect whatsoever for the claim of the resurrection of the physical body. And so I would suggest that common sense, therefore, means that movements that have such a widespread impact on the world don't get started on a claim that would not have had any traction with the cultural worldview of the day unless they were built on something that actually happened. Secondly, aside from something happening that completely astonished everyone's expectations at the time, it is inconceivable that this, that this band of friends and disciples, who having no political or social capital, after going into hiding, scared out of their minds because their leader had just been arrested, they saw him hung on a cross. Remember that from the text I read, there's no men disciples to be found would then somehow pull it all together and start a movement that spread as quickly as it did over a claim they knew to be a lie. 
according to the historians of the day, such as Josephus and others, there were, already, there were at least a dozen other Jewish movements led by a messianic figure a hundred years prior and a hundred years after Jesus of Nazareth day. And every one of them led to the ultimate death and execution of their messianic leader. And as adherents of those movements, you had one of two options. You either abandon the movement altogether, or you go and you find another leader to replace the original one. It's not what the disciples did. But going around saying your Messiah was raised from the dead would not have been that persuasive of an option. Unless that's what happened. And they're just telling it as it happened. Third, if the gospel writers were making up a great story they knew not to be true, they would have certainly told the story differently. Again, it's not the male followers of Jesus who are the first to see the empty tomb. They do not even feel safe to come out from behind locked doors. It's women who come to the tomb that morning, coming to, apl- to apply spices to their Savior Jesus' body because he was hastily buried before the Sabbath. It was the women, Mary Magdalene and Mary who we hear hear earlier before this passage, who was the mother of James and Joseph. They were the ones who met the angel and then met Jesus and then were commissioned by the risen Jesus to be the first witnesses and apostles to the apostles. (laughs) Unless that's how it actually happened. That's not a detail you would have included in a first century account of events. And that's because, and bear with me, I'm just the messenger here, not a proponent of what culture was like in the first century in Palestine, the Greco-Roman world. I don't agree with this. (laughs) But in that day, women were not considered reliable witnesses. Their testimony was not even allowed in a court of law. So if you were writing a tale that you wanted to pass on as true in order to start a new movement, the last thing you would do would be to write that these women were the first to see the risen Jesus and then commissioned to go and be the witnesses to the other apostles. Again, I'm just the messenger, but a philosopher Celsus put it this directly. Don't shoot me. Christianity can't be true. We know this. Because the accounts of the, this is second century Greek, the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know, Celsus writing, not me. Just want to make that clear. We all know that women are hysterical. Why would you write that these women saw Jesus, saw a bodily raised Messiah, and were then the ones to go back and tell Jesus' disciples. 
unless that's how it happened. Because if that's, <laughs> you would be knowingly risking undermining your story by telling it that way, unless that's how it happened. Finally, before we move on, last little bit of evidence. As I've already noticed, this group was the most unfunded, under-resourced, under-networked originators of a worldwide community that has ever lived. <laughs> they had no political ties. They were not networked with the powerful. And their message, calling people to worship a guy that was brutally tortured to death as a treasonous criminal of the Roman Empire. The reason Pilate wanted it to say the king of the Jews on the cross is because he wanted the whole world to know this is what happens to your kings. And their claim was that we are worshiping him. He actually won. He was victorious. Not, at exa not exactly the most compelling claim to coax people into a fable. As Peter Kraft, professor of philosophy at Boston College, has written, why would the apostles lie? If they lied, what did they get out of it? I'll tell you what they got out of it. They got persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. But this is what they declared. And they declared this even though they themselves had to deal with the cognitive dissonance of coming face to face with a resurrected Jesus. Like us, they started from a posture towards reality that did not include the bodily resurrection of someone in your presence. According to Matthew and our text this morning, after the women saw the resurrected Jesus, remember, they returned with joy, Matthew says. Yes, they do, but also with fear. Another gospel writer shares that after all the other disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, one had been missing. His name is Thomas. And Thomas demanded to see the physical evidence before he would believe. And Jesus obliged. Jesus recognized the cognitive dissonance. And later in this chapter, the next time Jesus gathered his disciples together, Matthew writes honestly. Now the disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him, them in this passage. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. But some doubted. They still doubted. It just was not their normal everyday experience that someone bodily rises from the dead. And as we saw in the text, Jesus is well aware of this unsettling reaction that his followers would have when they saw him resurrected. It's why he repeats the angel's words to these women. And he looks at them and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You see, the truth is Easter Sunday is a time of celebration and joy. But as Barbara Johnson so eloquently equipped, we are Easter people, yes. But we're living in a Good Friday world. You and I both live in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. 
even if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I would make the case that something within you know, knows that something is deeply wrong with the world. And that perhaps it wasn't always this way. It's why we respond the way we do when we see injustice in the world. We know it's not supposed to be that way. And the one who seemed to be completely defeated by the injustice of this world, defeated by life's final enemy, death itself, and yet dealt a dealt death itself an ultimate and final death blow himself by bodily resurrecting, still says to us today, in the midst of our Good Friday world, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Look, there is much in this life and about this world that still hurts. Our lives still experience pain and trouble that is enough to cause us to simply give in to cynicism that things are just the way they are that stuff just happens oh well and again the apostle paul would say the only thing i got is the resurrection because if that didn't happen Embrace your cynicism, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die anyway. (laughs) But the apostle knew that the resurrection meant that the story has not yet been fully told. That hope genuinely remains. Because as he would write elsewhere, Jesus' resurrection was just the first fruits of a new kind of life that is currently breaking into this unjust, suffering, dying world. This world was not always this way. And according to Paul, the resurrection tells us that it's not always going to be this way in the future. And that's why, like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter also realized the significance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And in one of his two epistles, spoke of what now can be ours through faith in Jesus Christ. This is how he puts it, the Apostle Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. The fatalistic cynicism has been replaced. And not with some kind of naive or idealistic optimism. That would just, that would be the extent of what we would have if we were following a hoax and a fairy tale. But if the resurrection happened, our fatalistic cynicism can genuinely be a thing of our past. And we can respond in faith to Jesus' words, do not be afraid, and embrace this living hope. No matter our circumstances right now, in the world, in our personal life, in our relationships. Because as Tim Keller says it so well, the foretaste of what is to come is greater than the aftertaste of any other things that you might build your life on and experience in this life. 
I close with this from theologian Andrew Byers. Forgive me, it's an extended quote, but I have edited as far as I could. He says this, Idealism is untenable on the dark eastern fringes of Eden. And the cynics know it all too well. Idealists within the church pretend they have one foot just inside Eden's door, but the cynics know better. The cynics know that the way back to the garden is slammed shut. What cynics do not seem to acknowledge, however, is that the remaking of Eden is on the horizon and in process. So how can we embrace this eschatological perspective with enthusiasm and certainty? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus bodily rose from the dead. His resurrection announces the end of cynicism because it heralds the end of all that makes us cynical. When someone climbs out of his tomb, something is amiss in the world. Especially when the one leaving behind the grave clothes is the very son of God. The old age of sin and death, thorns and thistles, disorder and disillusionment, that age entered its dusk on the dawn of that third day. Satan weeps and gnashes his teeth. Death chokes on its own death rattle. And the sweet fragrance of new creation rises from the blank emptiness of Jesus' grave. Rather than idealism or cynicism, our only option is to embrace hopeful realism. This is a perspective that embraces the dual realities of contemporary evil and forthcoming redemption. It lives in the tension of a groaning creation and its imminent restoration. Idealists claim that we are in the suburbs of Eden. Cynics claim that Eden is a farce. Hopeful realists claim, with joy, that a new Eden looms just around the corner and that fresh green sprouts faintly push up through the cracks and crevices even now. Final sentence. If we truly embrace the biblical teaching that new creation is in the works and on the way, then a daring hopefulness will infuse our experience of daily reality, even when that reality is steeped in the broken mess of the old age, kicking and screaming in its waning hour. Put a quote I've already read the other way. Though, yes, we still live in a Good Friday world, we are Easter people. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we share the the first disciples' doubt. Help us to believe that there genuinely is a good explanation for what happened. And that is, as Jesus, you bodily rose 
from the grave. And because of that, you have birthed anew within us those who follow you, Jesus, as our Savior, as our King, and as our Lord. You have birthed a living hope. No matter what we might be going through right now, we can hold and hang on to that living hope. Not a naive optimism, but a genuine recognition in the face of Good Friday that we are still Easter people. And one day, Jesus, you will return once again bodily to be with us. And we will know your good and just reign in our own personal lives, in our own hearts fully, and also in the new heavens and the new earth. We celebrate your resurrection today, Jesus, as that is the first fruits, a foretaste of what is yet to come. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.